So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, in, in the end of chapter 5 of Hebrews, what was going on is the author was wanting to sort of open up a new topic. He's wanting to deal with this, this character, this Old Testament character named Melchizedek. And he kind of began the process as he was talking about Jesus being a better high priest than Aaron. As he begins that process, though, he has to pause. And he has to pause because he knows that the people that he's writing to can't handle what he's about to say. They need to kind of think a bit soberly about it, what he wants to say. He basically accuses them of still being quite immature. They haven't really grown the way they needed to grow. And so basically what he does is he pauses in chapter 6 to deal with their need to grow, to deal with their need to pursue maturity. And this is an important thing because we know that anything living grows. In fact, in reality, biologically, when things stop growing, guess what they start doing? Dying. (laughs) We're meant to grow. There's even some creatures that God's made, like reptiles, that grow until they die. We are meant to grow. Living things are meant to grow. When something doesn't grow, we think, what's wrong with that thing? We have have a a small little garden, a little vegetable patch in our back garden, and we we, we planted some courgettes because they're supposed to be really easy to grow, and and they're coming along, but it seems like they should be a lot farther by now, and you start to kind of worry and wonder, and and you just, things that you, that are alive are meant to grow. It's just a fact of life. And, and this is what we have to understand. As Jesus followers, we're not just supposed to be people who think, okay, there was this guy who lived a couple hundred years ago, a couple thousand years ago, and he taught some great things, and we want to do the great things that he did, or we want to follow the teachings that he gave. But as Jesus followers, we are those who recognize that we were once dead in our sins, and he has given us new life. He's made us spiritually alive. And as being made spiritually alive, guess what's supposed to happen? We're supposed to grow. And so this is the, the issue that the author of Hebrews wants to bring up. And in doing so, he also brings up, especially in verses 4 to 8, we'll see, one of the most difficult passages for us to deal with. So let's get into it. I'm going to give you three main sort of points about you know, how, how Jesus produces a better maturity in our life. And the first one is this. He does so as we actually desire to mature. He says to the readers in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. The word perfection there, you might even have a note in your Bibles, really holds this idea of maturity. Move towards maturity. There's nothing in the Scripture that would say that we are ever going to be perfect the way we think is perfect, the way Jesus is perfect, this side of heaven. It's not going to happen. But we should be moving toward that goal. We should be maturing in that process. And that's what he's talking about here. It's important because it's interesting when he says, let us go on. Go means go, but it actually, sometimes it's it's such a simple little word, we forget what that means. It, It means that you are actively exerting yourself. You are putting one foot in front of the other. There's movement. And we need to think about this. Because what the author wants us to understand is, listen, if we're going to desire, if we desire to mature, we need to recognize it requires movement. We've got to do something. We actually have to move. We have to go. We can't just think about it. I stole this analogy from another preacher, and I've used it before, but it's a great analogy. This guy uh, uh, named, uh, by the name of Francis Chan, he, he uses this example. He says, he says, if my daughter comes to me, and if I say to my daughter, go clean your room, And an hour later, my daughter comes back and she says, Dad, guess what? I gathered a group of people together and we decided to study what it means to clean your room. Or if if she said, you know, Dad, guess what? I memorized how to say, go clean your room in Greek. Or or, or she said, you know, we're not really sure what that's going to look like, so we're just waiting for the time that the room becomes clean. Now, there's no way that would ever fly. Because when God calls us to do something, He calls us to do something expecting that, guess what? We do it. We respond. We actually act. And we have to understand this call to maturity, this call to action is for our good. There's something good that God wants to produce in us as we desire to grow and as we actually take steps towards growth, towards maturity. And so he says, let us, lay, let us go on to perfection towards maturity. He says, notice, not laying again the, rep- the, the foundation of repentance from uh, dead works, 
so on and so forth. Now, I thought about taking some time to kind of to explain what each of these things are because these are things that the author calls elementary principles, things that are, should be pretty obvious to all believers. And as I was going through this, I was going, I bet you that most people in church don't even know what these things are for sure. If I was to call each one of you up and say, okay, explain to me what it means to, uh, what does it mean to repent from dead works? You'd probably go, uh, um, I think, it, well, maybe uh, uh, it would be hard, you'd be hard-pressed to explain it. But rather than do that, here, here's what I want you to understand. Remember who Hebrews is written to? Hebrews, Jewish people. And the reality is, though all these things could have a Christian application, what he's really talking about is, in a sense, an Old Testament knowledge of who the Christ is or who the Christ will be. So that's why he calls it, in verse 1, the elementary principles of Christ. It's this idea of what's the first things that we knew about Christ, the things the Old Testament told us about what God's chosen king would be like. And what the author's trying to say is, listen, we need to move beyond that. You, if you're going to mature, if you have a desire to mature, you need to know it's going to require more than just a basic Old Testament knowledge of who Jesus is. Now, how do we apply it to us? Because most of us here probably aren't Jewish. It means that we need to know that we need to, we need to want to know more than we know now about Jesus. We need to want to know, understand more about who He is, what He's accomplished, what He's going to do. Pushing past just the basics. Now, it's interesting. Here's, here's what the Scripture says about this idea of pushing past. Listen to this. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've, I've already reached perfection. Same word there uh, for maturity. He says, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. He makes it clear. He's pressing on. He's going forward. Why? Because he knows that's why, why Christ grabbed a hold of him. That's why Christ saved him so that he could move towards maturity. Now, it's interesting, too, this idea of pressing on past just the basic knowledge. The Pharisees were those who really seemed to know their stuff. The religious leaders in, in Jesus' day, who Jesus was constantly rebuking. Look what he, Jesus said to them in Matthew 23. Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. See, here's what happens. This is one of the reasons why we stop maturing or we stop desiring to mature because we make the mistake of thinking, hey, I, I, I do all my good little religious things. I show up to the right meetings. I say the right prayers. I praise God in the right way. You know, I, I do these things and because I do those things, you know what? I know I'm mature or at least maturing. I'm fine. And sometimes what happens is we, we get so that we're, we're really particular about how we're doing our religious works, but we neglect the things that are actually far more important. How many of us have been guilty of this? Where we think, you know what, I, I know enough about God, I know enough about following Jesus that I'm cool where I am, I'm, I think I'm doing okay. But do you understand what he means by justice? What does Jesus mean by justice? What's justice to Jesus? What about mercy? What about faith? See, we can easily kind of slip into this thing of, I'm doing the things that my church culture expects of me. I'm ticking off the boxes. I can say I'm okay. But do we really want to mature? Because it's going to take more than that. He goes on to say, in verse 3, after mentioning these different things, he goes on to say, and this we will do if God permits. Now, this isn't just kind of a polite thing he's saying. He's not just himself trying to act religious or something. The author is, is, is stating something that is important that every biblical author understands, that we can only do what God calls us to do if God gives us what we need to do it. That's what it means when he says, if God permits. This is not him doubting that God wants people to mature, that God will even give that. It's him acknowledging it's got to be God working in us. Listen to what the psalmist said. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, 
They labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's not that there's not supposed to be a builder of the house or a guard watch in the city. It's just that unless God helps, it's not going to be enough. Do you sense that? Seriously, Christian, Jesus follower, do you sense that if you have a desire to grow, you have a desire to mature in your walk with Jesus, do you sense even my best isn't enough to help me grow? Because if you do, you're in a good place. Guess what it requires? All right, God, you're going to have to do this. And I've found, too, that sometimes God seems to sort of give me what I need at a slower pace than I want it. And, and the reason is, I think the reason is this, because what I want to do is I want to feel like I've accomplished something. I'm looking to, for God. God, just show me a new box I can draw that I can tick off. Just show me another thing I can do, another ring on the, rung on the ladder that I can climb up and feel like I've accomplished something, as opposed to just God wanting me to just <laughs> say, Lord, except by your grace, I, I can't do anything. Lord, you, you're going to have to produce me. Lord, I just need to keep following you. I was praying in, in the shower the other day thinking of a difficult situation that I had to deal with. And I'd be honest, it was, really, it was really tugging on my heart and it was really wrestling with it. And so I'm praying as I'm, I'm just standing there and I said, Lord, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I really just don't know what to do. And I, and I had this thought, there was that, this thought of, you know what, just, just give up. Just give up. What, why, why are you... Why are you wrestling with all these things, with all these people, with all these circumstances, all these problems? Why are you trying to, why are you doing this? It's not worth it. And I, and I felt like this is what my heart was. My, I was in this real sort of moment, a literal moment of sort of doubt and crisis, thinking, why, just, why, why do I even, why even follow Jesus? And I had the sense of God speaking to me, through the Spirit speaking to me, sort of saying, do you want to go? And the first thing that came to my heart was exactly what, what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus asked him that question. Jesus, Peter, do you want to go also? And I said, Lord, where am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? Yeah, this is hard. It's hard to follow you sometimes, but what else am I going to do? Where else am I going to go? Who else has the answers to life's biggest questions? Who else shows the character that you show? Where else do I have any hope that God is good other than looking at Jesus Christ? Where else am I going to go? Yep, you know what? Unless the Lord builds the house, I'm laboring in vain. But guess what the gospel says to us? The Lord's building the house. <laughs> He's guarding the city. So this, this reality is, is, is that Jesus wants to produce in us a better maturity. He wants to do this, and it happens as we desire, as we recognize, okay, Lord, I know I need to act. What, what would you have me do? And I want to grow. I want to know more than just a, a cursory or a kind of practice or, or knowledge, and I need you to bless me, otherwise nothing's going to happen. So this is the context that we get into verses 4 to 8, where he says these words. Verse 4, he says, For it is impossible. Let me be really clear about that word there in verse 4, impossible. It's impossible to translate the word impossible as difficult. Are you following me? It means impossible. He says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, I want you just to think about who does that sound like. Now, don't answer out loud. I just want you to think in your heart of hearts. Does that sound like a believer, someone who has new life? Just think about it. He says, if that person, whoever that is, verse 6, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, we need to kind of understand uh, what this means. So before, before we get to three uh, views on this, don't turn the PowerPoint yet. I don't want them to get distracted. Before we look at the three ways that we can interpret this, and I would say the three ways I'm going to share are three ways that are orthodox, they are appropriate. I only agree with one of them, but I still think all of them are appropriate. But before we talk about it, let's make sure we're really clear what this is not saying. This is not saying 
that you have a person who's been born again, a person who's received the life of God, and then they blow it bad and they lose their salvation. But then they repent and then they get it back. And then they blow it bad and they, get, they lose their salvation and they repent and they get it back. It does not mean that. And I want to be clear about that because there have been some people, there are some people who go to this church, who come from churches, who taught them that. Oh, you really blew it. You went off and got drunk. You're not saved now. You better come back to church, repent, come forward, and then you get saved again. There are churches that teach that. That is heresy. That's a false gospel, okay? That's twisting the scripture. It does not mean you lose it, you get it back, you lose it, you get it back. It cannot mean that. What does he say? It's impossible for them to be renewed again. So if somebody does this, whatever it is, whoever they are, guess what? They can't get renewed again. It's very sobering to think about, but it's very important that we understand that. It doesn't mean that. So what does it mean? What does this, this phrase, fall away, mean? Let's look at the three views, okay? The three views about this section, verses 4 to 8. The word for falling away there is a word that, uh, it's where we get the English word apostate. So the Greek is where we get the English word apostate. And so it's an idea of somebody who uh, was once a follower is no longer a follower. So here's the three views. The first say that falling away is this. It's rejecting the sufficiency of Christ. So it's basically saying, yes, I said Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection was enough to make me right with God, but I don't believe that anymore. They say that's what that is. That's what this falling away in Hebrews 6 is referring to. Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, the author deals with that issue again, or for the first time, depending on what you, how you interpret this. I don't think that's what he's talking about here, but this is what he says. So, who's doing it? There are some who would say that what's described in chapter 4 is someone who is a born-again believer. That's what the word regenerate means. The, the, if you see on the screen the word regenerate, it just means to be born again. Now, if you're not really familiar with some of that, that language, it's kind of too churchy for you. Let me, let me explain really quick what this means. Jesus was visited one night by a very religious man, a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was one who believed that Jesus was from God, who believed that uh, he, he was probably the Messiah, but had still some questions, wasn't positive. So he visits Jesus kind of in secret, and before Jesus answers his questions uh, that he's asking, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again, literally born from above and the idea there is that, Nicodemus, you need more than religious works. You need new life given to you, life that only God can give. So when we, if you come to church camp, and you should, we're going to talk in Titus uh, about this idea of regeneration. Titus, Paul writes to Titus about this, this reality of regeneration, this need to be given new life by God. So now, there, knowing that, there are some who would say, that what's described in verse 4, the person that's described in verse 4 is a regenerate believer. And so what's happening then, what the results are, okay, if he's rejecting the sufficiency of Christ as a regenerate believer, he becomes unregenerate. So he was born again and he becomes unborn again. And because that's happened, what happens means that person can never be saved again. So it's this idea that someone was given new life by, by God they backslide, they harden their heart, and they finally get to a place, they say, this is rubbish, I don't believe in this Jesus stuff anymore, I'm out of here, and they lose their salvation, and that's it, they can never get it back. Now that is a legitimate interpretation of this verse. It is. Orthodox people believe this. I'll be honest with you, probably at least half of Calvary Chapel pastors I know would interpret it that way. It's a legitimate view. Because of the context of Hebrews, because of the way this is taken out, you can see why they'd say that. So here's another view. Some would say that this falling away that's described in Hebrews 6, it's a refusing to mature in Christ. Obviously, the context, as we were showing really clearly, is the author calling people to mature. These guys are refusing to mature. And this is, it is regenerate believers, born-again believers who are doing this. But the result is really a severe chastening a loss of rewards. And they get that because of what happens in verses 7 and 8, which we'll talk about in a minute. This idea that, that burning up a field sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 3 that deals with our rewards, you know? 
That if, we, if we're not fruitful, if we're not growing, that um, our, we lose our rewards, but we're still saved, though as by fire. If you're not familiar with it, go back and read 1 Corinthians 3. Some people say that's what it is. Now, and when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, the author's going to deal you know, extensively about this issue of chastening, God chastening those that are His. And that's a legitimate view. I have a lot of friends that are more of a, I guess I might say the more of the Calvinist ilk, if you know what that means. If you don't, that doesn't matter. But if you know what that means, they're more of that ilk who would say that's what this is. It's just, it's just talking about a loss of reward. Now, here's the third view, and I'll be up front. This is the view that I think it is. Here's where, here's where I, I believe it is. I believe what's happening here, it is in the context of maturity, and what's happening is this apostasy is a rejecting of the authority of Christ. That, that these people that, that he's, he's talking about, they are people who either could do or have done in rejecting the, Christ, the, the, the authority of Jesus over their life. They're saying, okay, yeah, maybe Jesus was the Savior, but he's not, he can't really tell me what to do. They reject his lordship. Now, it's interesting. Notice that the author changes uh, pronouns. He talks about us before. Then he talks about in verses 4 to 8, they or them. And then he goes back in verse 7, we, us, you. Do you understand? He seems to be talking about two different categories of people. Now, I, what I believe is that these are people that he's referring to, whether just hypothetically, just, hey, this could happen, or there were people among the Hebrews who had made professions that Jesus was the Messiah, but when it came down to it and the persecution came, they thought, you know what, sorry, I can't trust him. I deny that he is actually the Lord, the Messiah. And they walked away. Could be that. Or it could just be using a hypothetical example. But I believe what he's talking about here is not regenerate believers, but what I would call convinced unbelievers. And here's what I mean by this. He says in verse 4, he describes these people, who, those who have once been enlightened. The word enlightened doesn't necessarily mean that, you, uh, that you've been born again. It just means that you understand something. I've met loads of people that, that understood the gospel really well. I've met people that were staunch atheists, but very bright people who had studied religion and understood what we mean by regeneration, understood the gospel better than probably a lot of you guys sitting here today. And they would fully deny it. So just understanding the truth of what God says or the truth of the gospel doesn't necessarily make you born again. You following me? Also, listen, he describes them as those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this could be a reference to God the Spirit, could be a reference to God the Son. Either way, he uses the word taste twice, tasting the, the heavenly gift. Later on in verse 5, he says, tasting the good word of God. The whole idea of tasting is the idea that you experience something, not necessarily that you ingest it. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, it says specifically he, when he tasted the sour wine, wine mingled with gall, he wouldn't take it because it was basically a, uh, an anesthetic and he didn't want to remove any of the pain that he experienced on the cross. So he tasted it, but he didn't receive it in. You, you understand what I'm saying? Now, as I said, the other views are legitimate. The reason I think this is the, the case, to me, it fits exactly with what he's saying here because he says specifically, here's the result. The, it's impossible for that person who has tasted the Word of God, who, is, who has been convinced, yeah, Jesus is the way, truth, and life. I understand the gospel. I believe this is true. I should probably start following Jesus. I get this. If they've received that truth, understood that truth, and they say, nah, forget it. I've changed my mind. I don't want any of that rubbish. It's impossible for them to be saved. They've lost their opportunity. Now, I think this fits more with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter um, 13. Or not, not 13, sorry, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the Son of Man. And whoever blasphemies that they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Jesus said this. So this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, some people think it means, 
okay, I've, I've said that, you know, someone, someone did a miracle in Jesus' name, and I said, ah, that wasn't of Jesus. Oh, no, I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it is. Though they were, in a sense, doing that to Jesus, that's not what it is. The idea here is Jesus saying, okay, there were a group of people that even though that Jesus showed that he had the authority of God, that he, showed he spoke in the authority of God, he exercised the authority of God over creation, over death, over sickness, over sin. Even though he did all that, the religious leaders of his day said, no, you can't do it's None of that's from God. It's all of the devil. And he says, you know, you don't understand, man. You're basically rejecting the only way you can be forgiven. So the idea in my mind is that what the author of Hebrews is saying lines up with that. Jesus is not talking about someone who's lost their salvation, but somebody who's openly, understandably rejected the only way they can be saved, the only way they can be forgiven. Now I say this because if we just say it's a loss of reward, to me, it loses its, it loses its sting. It loses what seems to be there as something really serious. See, here's what the Scripture says. I should have said it before, but I'll say it now. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, what does it say? Therefore, beloved, as you have always uh, obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what does he say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Peter talks about making your calling and your election sure, knowing for sure. Do you know for sure that God has saved you? Have you put your faith in Him? This is serious stuff. It's heavy stuff. But this is the reality that we need to, to face. I believe what the author of Hebrews is wanting to do is wanting to say, listen, Jesus produces a better maturity in those who genuinely trust him. They trust him. Not just people who do their religious duties, not just people who've, who have kind of been baptized or confirmed, whatever else thing they've done, but people who truly, genuinely trust him. Jesus, I'm trusting you. Unless you build the house, I labor in vain. I, I'm looking to you. Because if you haven't done that, and you decide, you know what, I understand that's what I need to do, I understand I need to believe in him, but I just think, nah. Watch out. To reject that is huge. Please don't take lightly the opportunity that God gives you to respond to His Son Jesus. It's a huge privilege. Look, I know it might be a bit boring to sit here listening to me, but understand as faulty as I am or or whoever else would teach up here, here's the reality. God has graciously given you an opportunity to know who He is and to respond to Him. To understand what He's done for you by sending His own Son and to respond to Him. If you don't understand, ask. If you're still confused and questioning, no problem. We're not pressurizing you. Take the time to wrestle through it. I had to wrestle through it. I'm a cynic by nature. But if you're convinced that these are things are true and you're still saying, I don't care, I won't believe, watch out. Think about that. Because there definitely seems to be a place where God says, you know what, okay. You don't want to know, I won't tell you. It's sobering, isn't it? It's scary, actually to think that there can be a place where God says, okay, I respect your wishes. I honor your ability to choose. If you understand who I am, you understand what I've done, I've revealed this to you by my Holy Spirit. You've seen the evidence of my work in people's lives. And you still say, nope, I'm not going to trust him. I don't care. I used to have, uh, do youth work when I lived in America for about 12 years, and I'd have conversations with kids all the time, with teenagers all the time. And most of the teenagers I had conversations with were unchurched. And I used to challenge them. I used to say, okay, what keeps you from being a Christian? What is it that's hanging you up? Is it you don't trust the Bible? You don't know if Jesus is real? I mean, what's the, you say you're not sure, you think it's all weird. What is it? Is it the way Christians act? I mean, what is it? What is the intellectual hang-up? 
And I'd ask them, I'd challenge them, what is the hang-up? And these, they brought the same kind of questions, you know, how come there's so much suffering in the world, that kind of stuff. And we would deal with those things. But oftentimes, what it rolled down to, they admitted, when we'd, we'd kind of rustle through those things and talk about those things, they'd really, really they'd say, it's not so much those things, it's just, I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like this idea that there's a God that I have to obey. I don't want to do what He wants. I want to do what I want to do. I just think, man... Thanks for being honest, I'd say. It's good that you're being honest about that. But think about that for a second. Think about that. If there's a creator, someone who's made you, which the evidence points so clearly to, and that creator clothed himself in human flesh so he could say, this is exactly what I'm like, so there's no confusion about who I am. And he lived an absolutely perfect life so that even his enemies couldn't accuse him of anything but they killed him anyway. And he dies on this cross saying that what he's doing there is making a way for us to be forgiven. And he predicts how he's going to die, at whose hands he's going to die, and even more so, he predicts three days later he's going to come back from the dead. He does all that. You see all the evidence for that. And you still say, yeah, yeah, but I don't really want that guy telling me what to do. Really? Someone who loved the unlovable? You, you can't trust him? Really? You can't trust the one who, as he's hanging on that cross, whose enemies are glorying in his pain, says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can't trust that guy? Guys, listen. The author of Hebrews is wanting to sober up these Hebrew Christians, not because he's unsensitive or insensitive or unsympathetic to the difficulties they're having as persecuted believers, but to make sure they are indeed believers being persecuted. To make sure they actually do generally trust Christ. They don't take lightly the fact that they've understood the gospel. They don't just chuck it aside. They embrace Him of whom they've heard. I know this is serious and, and sobering stuff, but man, it's important for us to recognize this. In fact, look at what he does in verses 7 to 8. He basically is really clear here, right? He, he's, he gives this analogy. He says, for the earth, speaking of giving a kind of an, uh, an analogy or a metaphor from agriculture, something they would all have been familiar with. He says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful, by those, uh, for those by whom it was cultivated receives blessing from God. In other words, a farmer tills up the land, plants a certain crop. What does he expect? That crop to grow. Planted corn. I got corn. He says, praise God. That's what happens. I planted, I tilled, I planted, here's what I got. But if he tills and plants corn and all he gets is weeds, noxious weeds that choke out any other life and anything, what does he do? He tries to scrape those things down. He might burn them off. But if that's what he keeps getting, guess what happens? There's nothing he can do. It would, it would not be the labor it would take to dig down from down to like two feet of topsoil to get rid of all the weed seed and bring topsoil back in. They would do that now because we have the technology to do that. They wouldn't do that then. You know what they would do? Burn the field, walk away. It's done. That's it. Nothing else we can do. We've planted the seed after seed after seed. We've burned down the field to try to get rid of the, the, the weed seed and plant new seed, and what happened? Nothing. They never bore fruit. See, here's the thing. I, you might notice in your notes, I, I basically posed three questions. The first one was, why have they experienced God's work in their life? Because he said, he describes people who have actually experienced God's work in their life. They've experienced that. Why? Because he wants, God wants them to know who Jesus is and put their trust in him. The second question I posed was this. Do they want Jesus dead or alive? It talks about in verse 6, doesn't it? These people who have fallen away, what do they do? They crucify again for themselves the Son of God, put Him to an open shame. In other words, they like the idea of a suffering Messiah. Oh yeah, He's really compassionate and He's weak. It's kind of nice. But a resurrected Messiah whose claims are now verified who can demand our allegiance? No, I'm not too sure about that. I'd rather have him dead than alive. 
And the last question we pose is, is this. What is the condition of their soil? L- listen to this. The words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13. You guys know this. Jesus told the parable of the sower, right? Sower goes out the seed. It falls on different kinds of soils. Listen to how Jesus explains what that parable is about. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who has received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Sounds like what's going on in Hebrews. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives the seed on good soil, on good ground, is he who hears the word and understands it, and indeed, notice, bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, some 30. Do you understand? Do you see the correlation between what Jesus himself said in Matthew 13 and what the author of Hebrews is saying here? See, I don't think he's saying, oh, people can lose their salvation. I think what he's trying to say to people is he's saying, do you realize either hypothetically there can be these kind of people or the people that have left and said, we don't believe in Jesus anymore as Messiah, this is them. That they've understood that God has worked in their midst. If you think about it, when the author of Hebrews writes this book, it's probably only about 20 years after Jesus lived, uh, died, resurrected, and ascended. There were probably people who would have read this letter or amidst, uh, among these people who would have seen the very miracles of Jesus. And basically he's saying this, he's saying, listen, what kind of soil were they? They received the word and kind of go, oh, this is awesome, but as soon as it gets difficult, they go, oh, this is not so awesome. They received the word and maybe begin to grow a little bit, but then they kind of got busy with, you know, the, you got the family, you got work, I'm trying to retire at a certain age, and things got busy, got to compromise a little bit so that I can make more money, and that means maybe not being so vocal about my faith, or, and eventually just kind of go, you know what, it's more important that I raise my family than that I follow Jesus, when Jesus said just the opposite. Or are they the kind of people that they receive the word and yeah, it's difficult, but they still rejoice that Jesus is doing something in them. They receive the word and and yes, there are these cares they have to deal with, but you know what? They pull those weeds. They reprioritize their life on a daily basis. They seek God's forgiveness. They trust him to, to keep replanting and pulling weeds as they come up. And they begin to bear fruit. You see, what I believe the author of Hebrews is saying here is this. He's saying, listen, Jesus matures everyone he saves. And if people are refusing to mature, it's an indication that they're not really saved. How many of you guys want me just to be done and (laughs) wish this was over? (laughs) It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard for me to read this stuff. I'll be honest, I'm reading stuff going... Lord, am I really saved? Have I been a preacher of the gospel for 25 years? Have I seen you save people and yet I myself have not been saved? Is that me? Am I actually bearing fruit? Do I really want to grow in you? Do I want to love you more? But here's what's cool. The section isn't in like this. You look at verse 9 and look what the author said. He says, but beloved, I love that, but beloved, much loved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. How does Jesus produce a better maturity in us? Listen, through confident, persevering faith. You know how that faith develops? It, listen, it envelops, it's a faith that develops as it's encouraged by supportive believers. I love the fact that the author says, beloved. 
look, I know it's hard for you to hear this, but you're loved. And we actually think God's doing good things in you. Guys, we need to do this with each other. We need to encourage each other. And listen, Christian encouragement is not, hey, you're doing great. Keep going. You can do it. Come on. That doesn't encourage anybody. It just encourages pride. Our encouragement should be, you can trust God. Don't give up on Him. He's doing work. I see His work in your life. I see evidence of His grace in your life. Let's pray together. We're walking with you through this. I felt like you feel. I'm going to weep when you weep. I'm going to rejoice when you rejoice. I'm there supporting you to help you trust Jesus. Not trust me, but to trust Him. Not trust yourself, but to trust Him. That's what we mean by supportive believers. This is how our faith grows. This is why we do church. This is why we have a 20-minute break. It's not because we like coffee so much. It's because we need to support one another. Listen to this. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Philippian church, encouraging them. He's like, man, I'm so confident God's doing a good work in you. Even that church had some serious problems. I'm confident God's doing a work and he's going to finish that work. He wrote to the uh, Thessalonians. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Isn't that a great description of being supportive? The unruly in this context were those who basically refused uh, to work when they could. They they were milking the generosity of believers. They were refusing to work. And Paul says, you know, tell those guys, dude, you got to try to get a job, man. Seriously. (laughs) No more. Those who refuse to listen to authority, man, you got to really humble yourself and submit a bit. There's a place for that. It's part of supporting each other. But also he talks about this great idea of comforting the faint-hearted. Have you ever wanted to just give up and stop following Jesus? Have you ever felt that way? If you've ever felt that way, did you avoid church? Do you know the very worst thing you can do? This is when you need to be at church, you need to be with believers and say, you need to say to them, man, I am faint-hearted. I just feel like I can hardly go another step. And we do just the opposite. You know why we do just the opposite? Because we're full of pride. We're foolish. Don't you know that God wants to build your faith through supportive believers, through people who are just sit with you and be quiet with you and pray for you and believe for you? Remember when Jesus heals the paralytic man? What happens? He can't get to Jesus, so his four friends carry him, tear a roof, uh, tear a hole in the roof, and lower him down. And the Bible says when Jesus saw what? Their faith. You say, I can't walk. I can't even go to Jesus anymore. Great. Get four friends. Let, him, let them carry you to Jesus. Because he'll see their faith and he'll help you. This is comforting the faint-hearted. Listen to this. What did he say? It's right there on the screen, isn't it? Uphold the weak. Man, I'm not doing very well. I keep falling in the same sin over and over again. You know what? There's forgiveness. There's grace. Let's get up and walk again. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the righteous man falls seven times. It means he does it perfectly, but he gets up thereafter. We uphold the weak. Come on, let's keep walking. And be patient with all. Can we be patient with each other? I know you're thinking, John, I'll be patient with you if you stop preaching so long. Okay, let's move forward then. So it's, it's this, he matures us, he produces a, a better maturity through this, this this confident, persevering faith, and it's faith that's encouraged by supportive believers. But also, listen, it's a faith that's developed through service to his saints. Again, commit, commitment to God's people, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you ministered to the saints, and you do minister. Now, the author is not saying, oh, look, you've, you've earned salvation. It's all cool. You know, you're working hard, therefore you, you know, you, you're, you're in there. God's going to reward you with heaven because you're working hard. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, God has begun a good work in you, and we see the evidence of God's grace in your life because of how you love the saints and serve the saints. He's wanting to encourage them. This is how we see it in you. But this is important because it's important that we don't make the mistake of thinking that just being busy with church stuff is the same as laboring in love. Listen to this. Jesus says to the church, 
that he writes to um, in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He has John write this down to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those uh, who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them uh, liars, and have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Those are all things he's saying well done to. But he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. In other words, you're doing all the right stuff, but you're doing it for the wrong motive. You're not doing it because you love me. This is why the, the book of Galatians says this. Listen, the book of Galatians, which is all about the fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it says this. For Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avail anything, but faith working through love. He goes on in the same chapter later to say, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, in other words, to do what you want to do, but through uh, love serve one another. See, how do we mature? We mature as our faith, as our trust in God increases. How does our trust in God increases? When we love Him enough to do what He says, and guess what He says to do? Love my people. Serve my people. Seek the help for my people. Amen. Almost done. This is also a faith that's learned in relationship with mature believers. In verse 13, the author writes, For we desire that each of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end and that you do not become sluggish. Some of your versions might say lazy. Laziness is not helpful in any area of life. Relationships, work, school. Laziness is always a bad thing, but it's specifically bad when it comes to a relationship with God. It really, man... <laughs> causes problems everywhere else. I say that as a person who tends to work a lot, but tends to maybe not work on my walk with God the way I should. I'll work hard in ministry, but maybe not work hard on just knowing the Lord, enjoying the Lord, honoring the Lord. And, and the author is saying, listen, we want you to share the same diligence. We want you to keep ministering to the saints, but we want you to do so, listen, with this full assurance of hope. Now, what does he mean by assurance? This is important. You know, we talk about the security of believers. How do we know that we're actually going to go to heaven? What's our, what makes us secure, securely right with God? Listen, our security with God is based solely on what Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. That we're accepted in the beloved, we're declared righteous before God. Praise him. You can't add to that and you can't take away from that. That's great news. That's where your security comes from. Assurance is a little bit different. How do we know that that's the case? How do we know that's the case? Well, that comes from, listen, that comes, assurance comes from us understanding what Jesus is doing in us. How do you endure? How do you persevere wanting to mature, when you see yourself messing up day in and day out, how do you persevere? I mean, doesn't that make you want to give up? I get discouraged. Like, man, Lord, I'm supposed to be mature and I feel like I'm getting worse sometimes. So what motivates us to persevere? Jesus working in us. Listen to this. We read uh, Philippians 2.12 before. Let me read 2.12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but uh, now much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is why, listen, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You know what gives you assurance that you actually are secure in Christ, that you actually belong to him? Because he doesn't let you get away with not maturing. He doesn't let you stay a baby. He says to you, it's time to grow up. Come on. He celebrates when you take your first step. He celebrates when you learn to feed yourself. He celebrates and encourages you by His Holy Spirit through His people when you mature. But He does not let you not mature. This is where the chastening comes in that we'll talk about when we get to chapter 12. God will not let us not progress. He deals with us to make sure we progress. 
This is where our assurance comes from. If you are here today and you're going, you know, I believe all this stuff and I don't want to stop believing, but I'm just not sure if, I'm just not sure if I'm really saved yet. Maybe the reason you lack assurance is not because you don't understand the gospel, but you understand that God, out of his love for you, will sometimes make you miserable so you learn to walk with him more. Maybe that's the problem. He's a good father. And as a good father, guess what? Sometimes he disciplines his kids to make sure that they can be closer to him. Lastly, he says, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate. Now, this whole idea of imitation requires that you can see the person you're imitating. Now, there's been a lot of people who have read this verse. Some of the commentators I read talked about how this is why we should study the saints of old, the believers from the past who, who had great victory. And I love reading biographies about believers in the past who did great works for God, George Mueller and John Wesley and John Calvin. And these guys, you just love to read about these old guys, you know, old dead guys. They're, I like old dead guys. They're cool. But you know what? I, I get encouraged, but I also get discouraged because usually what happens, you read their biography and they just highlight all the good bits. But you know where I really get encouraged? I really get encouraged hanging out with Adam on a Wednesday. Because, because when we hang out on a Wednesday and we talk about ministry stuff and we confess our sins to each other and we struggle through things and, and I see him persevere, I think if Adam can do it, I can do it. I get encouraged when I go hang out with Paul Dean and I see how faithful he is to pray for his kids and with his kids and to make sure they, that they know Jesus, even if they don't want to know Jesus. He pushes through. He's a, such a faithful dad. I think if Paul could do it, I can do it. It's being with people who are maturing in Christ that, that helps you mature in Christ. So can I exhort you to do something? Find somebody you can look up to. And let me tell you, you're not going to find anybody you can look up to in every area. I find I need a bunch of different brothers around me that can encourage me in different ways. I need to, to, to see them in different ways. Find that. You know what else? Be that. Be that. Be an example. Say, God, I want to grow so I can encourage other people to grow. Want to mature. I'll close with this verse. I went a bit too long today. I apologize. Paul writes again in Philippians. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Guys, people need to understand the good news. It is news after all. But people need to see it demonstrated. They need to see how good it is. You know how they see it's good? But how it's changing us. How it's maturing us. Let's help one another grow.